I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, today I am trying to keep it together. Uh, we are joined by uh, <laughs> Sheena McFarland. She was a student in the Davis County School District, uh, which recently entered into an agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice to remedy, get this now, severe racism and harassment of black and Asian American students. So when I read this, because I, I got a news alert about it, I... I, you know, I was flabbergasted, right? And I thought to myself, this can't be real because you read the details of it. And and it was the entire institution. They've been doing this for years and they thought nothing of it. So, so we, I think Amy, we should we should say the investigation revealed persistent failures to respond to reports of race based harassment of black and Asian American students by district staff and other students. So over a period of five years, there were hundreds of of cases of this reported or witnessed, and many of these went up the chain of command. That's, I think, the thing that was so shocking, was that this wasn't just a couple of kids or, you know, oh, well, it was on the basketball court or, you know, we've had those conversations yep. and so we have this, you know, t- you know we're going to make you watch this video and everything's <laughs> going to be great. But right. this was like, you know, persistent and, and when it was reported, it was, um, I remember one of the uh, examples was, a woman said uh, she reported being called the N-word and the principal told her, um, well, it's in the rap music, so what do you expect? Like that's going to be part of popular culture. So, so we Sh- wanted to talk to Sheena, Sheena about her experiences. Sheena, uh, first of all, thank you for being here and tell us a little bit about yourself and you know your situation having been in the uh, Davis school system. Sure. So first, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um I have lived in Davis County for a very long time. In college, I moved to Salt Lake. I am now, as an adult, willingly moving back to Davis County. Whole host of reasons, but um, I'm only hoping right that it now, gets I'm better. Scratching my bald head, trying to figure that out. Right, I know it's property prices. Right, I got so, you. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, I'm the oldest of seven kids, and I'm we're all adopted from around the world. So I'm from India. Um, several of my siblings are from India. We have a Latina sister. I have a, a half black, half white sister. I've got a couple of white sisters. So we've run the gamut, right? And I have two white parents. But I've been at Davis County School Districts my whole public education from so kindergarten to twelfth grade. Kindergarten through twelfth grade, absolutely. Graduated in two thousand, so it's been a bit. Um, but the number of times that I encountered racism from students, from from teachers, from principals. And never had any remedy for it, right? Mm-hmm. And 
one of the most hurtful and horrible things, I think, is as I, as I would tell people these stories, they would look at me and go, that didn't happen. You're just making that up. Yeah. And my thought was, why would I ever take the time to put brain power behind making up this story? Right. Yeah. These tears that I'm crying and the story are real. Yeah. Um, and that was so hard. And I think you were flabbergasted, Jason, when you saw that report. I was so relieved because it was so validating to say, hey, this has been going on forever. And it's about time someone paid attention and did something about it because it was clear that wasn't going to happen within the district. So how old were you when you first had, I mean, that you that you can recall that you had this kind of um, experience where you thought, okay, this, I know this doesn't feel right. Sure. So let me tell you two stories. So both are in second grade. So I um, had a good friend named Derek who was of uh, Japanese descent and he and I were in the same class and we would walk home together. Um, our houses were not very, just a block away from mm-hmm. the school in elementary. We were walking home one day and this is how I learned the N-word is that a truck pulled over with a bunch of huge men who were probably in high school, right? Because we were very small children um, and started screaming that word at us and physically beat us. Um, I, they we, actually put their hands on little kids. Oh, yeah. We both were knocked unconscious. I woke up with a bloody lip and a black eye. He was in probably worse shape. We were in a panic because we were little kids who had just like gone through something horrific. So we just walked home because what else do you do? We're close to home. Um, and I still think that I am so grateful that my dad, who came home from work that night, as soon as my mom called him and told him what had happened, we drove around for hours looking for these guys. And I am mm-hmm. so grateful to this day he did not find those people because he would probably still be in prison for murdering them. Mm-hmm. Um, it was been right so horrific, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first time that I was like, what? I was just like a little kid walking home, right? I didn't even have like a process for that because it was just like we were just walking home from school. Like we didn't do anything. We didn't like – We were two small children walking home from school. There was nothing for us to interact with. But also in second grade, I had Did you understand that the way you looked, your skin color was the reason for that? My mom and dad definitely helped me process that, right? They were really good about... Like, my parents have always understood racism, right? Mm -hmm. And how much they hated it. Mm -hmm. Um, We had some pretty horrific folks in our neighborhood um, who talked about... uh, We grew up in Davis County, so obviously a lot of LDS folks. And not that I think that all LDS folks believe this. But the reason one of the reasons my parents left the church is that when I got adopted, a neighbor came up and said, it is one thing to be born with the mark of Cain, but it is another to take these children of the devil and treat them as your own. That is unforgivable. And my parents said, we're out. We're done. Now, can I, I'm going to, uh, for those people who are listening to this, not from Utah, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, is, uh, LDS is short for that. Uh, they used to be called the Mormons, but they try not to do that anymore. Uh, and so there's this whole Thing and is this in the Book of Mormon? The, this Margaret no. Cain thing? Oh, I have you no idea. Well, yeah, the, sorry. Yeah, well, let <laughs> me say, the, 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 I, former I, Mormon, being raised LDS, yes. Um, so I, uh, the, the Mark of Cain is in the Bible. There's a they, they, they make a mark on Cain after he kills Abel, and so people refer to that in, in different religious contexts. Um, but that's never been. There's nothing in there that says it's a. Uh, you know, a, a, a discoloration of skin, right? It's not like white was the standard and then there was something else. Like that was not, that's not in the Let's scripture. Let's make it perfectly clear. Yeah. If you're born in uh, the Middle East, white can't be the standard. No, because, it, you know, Jesus was likely a very olive skinned man. Yes, he was. <laughs> yes. Likely. So, uh, but yeah, I, uh, so I, I think there was some Mormon um, theologist who in the 70s, I believe, maybe 60s, 70s, who said, um, the, the the mark of Cain was in fact this uh, idea that it was somebody uh, either black or brown skinned, 
and that's that's how that that skin trait gets passed on, right? Because right. like everyone else, holy, you know, they couldn't be. They had to be white. So it, it, that's it's not it's not something that that is part of the theology. It's not something in the doctrine. It's not something they taught. Um, but it, it was something that people believed. sort of there are a few doctrines like this, as you know, growing up in Davis County, that the church never officially espoused. But members, uh, large portions of membership would say they did adhere to that or believe that and and would go out and tell people that was a mormon belief an lds belief well but the, but the hierarchy didn't uh deter it is, is a problem so you go yeah. to 1978 at the time the church prophet was a man named spencer kimball mm-hmm. and he kind of as an aside uh because up until then uh blacks could not hold the priesthood in the uh church which is a, a, a mm-hmm. relatively huge thing and then in 78, all of a sudden, that goes away, mm-hmm. right? But he, but he didn't make it like an announcement announcement. It was just part of— Oh, uh, no, he did make it an announcement. Well, no, announcement. he did, but I'm That's just saying— That's how it, I found out the it, blacks were not allowed to have the priesthood was I saw— But it wasn't like the reason for the speech. It oh, was yes. part of the speech, wasn't wrong. it? Wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Which is interesting because yeah. I've been told this No, I was—and uh, you know, you, you grew up here. So it was a major, major—it was the point. It was a revelation was from God, okay. and which is, doesn't happen very often when you— he, in my lifetime where, a, where an LDS prophet has said, I have had this revelation and this is, now they'll give you advice and they'll say, this is what I admonish you to do. And this is what I, and they'll give you, they'll give sermons like a normal, like, a, you know, other religions have, but saying this was a vision I had from God. This was a, a, a direct, you know, this is a change in, you know, the Lord spoke to me. The Lord told me this is what we need to do differently. Right. And so that doesn't happen very often. And it okay. was the point. It was absolutely a okay. huge deal, which is when I, as a 10 year old, thought, wait a second, they couldn't have the priesthood before this. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that. I, I'd grown up LDS, but I lived, we lived in Alaska. I didn't know that. So it was a, my parents and I had this big conversation about it. And it was so bothersome to me that I actually wrote a letter to Spencer W. Kimball asking him uh, why this was the case. We've gotten way off track, so we so won't go we down there. So when we back, we're going to get back on track. Yeah. Uh, but you can see where this all starts and part of the, where she the discrimination, the, the bias comes from literally a religious context in a place where it is very largely uh, of uh, people of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When we come back, we uh, continue our discussion with Sheena McFarland about her experience growing up in a school system that uh, just recently was outed as one of the more biased and racist in America. You're listening to Voices of Reason. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Jason Lee, Amy Donaldson, back with the Loudman Project's Voices of Reason. Today speaking with Sheena McFarland, who was a student in the, uh, well, a student from kindergarten to 12th grade in the Davis School District, which uh, the U.S. Justice Department uh, put out a report, and they're going to remedy severe racism and harassment of Asian and black students in that district that over a five-year period, they have just scores of uh, examples of how uh, students Hundreds, were treated very yeah. poorly. 
Uh, Amy wants to kind of, we, we kind of got a little yeah. bit off topic going uh, into <laughs> well, a religious context, a but that's not exactly how this should be going. Yeah, I and, I and I think it is, like I think a lot of people look at Utah and say, oh, it has a religious overtone. Same thing with gender discrimination. And I'm not saying that there aren't influences that come from people's religious beliefs or what they think their religious belief should be, you know. Um, but I think there are a lot of families, LDS families, who are also like Sheena's family, who have kids adopted uh, from all over the world. Now, that's another complicated story. We've actually done a podcast on transracial uh, adoption. Yeah, adoptions. And so that's a different issue. But I think there are a lot of LDS families in Utah who have uh, white parents and kids of many different. Absolutely. We, we have those. It, it's very in our common. Colleagues. Yeah, it's very common. So uh, that's the thing that I guess um, I think made it more difficult for me because you ha- even if you have white administrators and white teachers, they might have nieces and nephews that are in your situation or they might have kids, you know, families. I know lots of people in that situation. So I guess I was surprised at the extent, right, of this. I wasn't surprised that it happens. It happens. And, and I will say this. It doesn't just happen in Utah. And and using religion as any kind of shield or explanation um, uh, allows you not to address this in our country, in our school system. Because there's something going on in the school system, right, that allows people to feel that this kind of behavior is okay. But as and, a seven-year-old, yeah. how do you – I actually wanted that. I wanted to hear your other example. You said you're yeah. going to tell us two yes. stories. So tell me the other one. So the other one was my second grade teacher, right, growing up. Um, and she was somebody who has made a mark in my life for a very long time. Um, but uh, Derek, my friend and I, who were beat up walking home from school one day, were in the same class in uh, second grade. And we were consistently had our names up on the board for you've got to stay in from recess because you've been misbehaving. Derek and I were two of the best behaved kids there are, right? I am a straight A student. I have always been that person. I'm a front row kid. I don't talk in the back. Like I am like, yeah. I was like the boring you friend. You me as a rule follower. Yeah, I'm totally <laughs> that, right? So I didn't become a smart aleck until I got to college, right? So I, it took me a long time to kind of un, unwind there. Mm-hmm. But um, it was pretty consistent. And I remember uh, my mom wanted to test, have both my mom and um, Derek's mom wanted to have us tested to get into the... Um, the accelerated learning program at the time yeah. and um davis county's uh, version of di- gifted and talented right gifted and talented it yeah. was called the gifted and talented program back then so i think it's now called spectrum or something <laughs> and maybe something new after that but um when my when my mom went to talk to this teacher the teacher's response was she knows nothing special it's a waste of your time to even do that right i went to a private kindergarten when i for the first, you know, kindergarten time because I was too young to be accepted into public kindergarten because I started reading when I was quite young. When I tested to get into kindergarten, I was on a 12th grade reading level. And the only reason they couldn't get me higher is I didn't have anything beyond a high school book for me to read. I was a pretty talented kid, right? So like, at four yeah. years old, you're reading yeah. at, at yeah. a high school level? Yeah. yeah, it was ridiculous. Like, words have already. just been my jam, right, my whole yeah. life. So I've uh, always yeah. gotten it. What's well, Ed. And Ed so, taught himself to read at three, reading the newspaper. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, yeah, some no. people just have that. Yeah, it's just, it just it was happen? just a thing that I was born with. My parents are like, we never did anything yeah. extra with you. It was yeah. just something that you caught on to. Not flashcards or photonics. Right, it was just fine. So, and so this teacher was, you know, pretty denigrating. I, Derek and I both tested. We both got into the learning program. Um, but I remembered her forever because she was. It was so clear that we were the only two kids of color in that class, and we were constantly the ones being held back from recess and all the fun activities. Um, when I got accepted to the University of Utah with a full ride scholarship, I walked myself back to my second grade teacher and said, "Hey, 
you said I wasn't going to be anything special. I just got a full ride. So I'm good. And I just walked out of the room. Right. Yeah. Mic drop kind of moment. Where I was yeah. like, I'm not going to let you respond yeah. because I know that she treated other people that way for a long time. And my mom went to people and talked to, you know, mm-hmm. um, administrators, talked to other folks. Nothing. It was just like, oh, I'm sure that's just you're imagining that. I'm sure they're misbehaving. I'm sure that she's on top of that. Right. And yeah. That or the, really or the excuse you get is, oh, the teacher's frustrated or frazzled. She didn't mean it the way you took it. Yeah, exactly. That's my favorite one. Um, I've talked to quite a few friends who grew up there and had, um, you know, pretty pointed racism, uh, uh, racist experiences. And the majority of it was in classrooms. It was not. I, I was expecting it more in sports. Sure. Because sure. that's my that's been my thing for 20 years. And. Um, but but really, it was the classrooms that were the problem. And it was a lot of subtle stuff, like you say, like being singled out to not go to recess or not. not um, there were also uh, there was a young woman who told me she was not allowed to be partnered with a white kid um, in a dance group thing they were doing, like a not a square dance, but something like where you had to have sure. a partner. We all did this. Right. Um, and was, oh, you can't be with him. He's you got you know, you're, you're different races. Um, and so that, and that's, these are, you know, you would think everyone, we would talk about this. Um, I'm 53. And so I s- expect some of this to come from people my, you know, older than me or my age. But some of these, the, this investigation was 2015 to 2020. These things are happening now. Today. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And these and, are recent experiences so from classrooms. Again, uh, going back to Sheena, your experience. So as you get older, how does it manifest? Is, is it kind of the same kind of thing? I, I hope you never got assaulted again. No. But uh, it, it it never changes or it, people don't seem to kind of get it ever? No, it's it really wasn't. You know, in, in junior high, um, I had a bully who was just this really horrific girl. Um, and I had a, a decent pack of friends, right? Like, we, you know, I had four or five friends mm-hmm. that were really close. Um, and I remember I had to get my wisdom teeth out and it was quite young, actually. I do everything young, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but how to get my wisdom teeth out. You're exceptional. And, you know <laughs> there we go, right? <laughs> so um, super humble about it, too. Right. Um, but I was out for the day because I went to go, you know, get that taken care of. Um, and my friends apparently confronted this bully of mine to say, knock it off. You need to stop this, right? The principal of my junior high called my mom up and accused me of being a gang leader that I had orchestrated this entire confrontation and it was completely on me that this had happened. I had no I was out. You're I was the under with uh, with your ice pack on right? your face now. <laughs> I'd been knocked out. We did leader. surgery. Yeah, they, I had no idea that this was happening, and of course it was my fault. And I was also at the time losing some weight, and so I had baggier pants, and I was told that I couldn't wear baggy pants because I looked like a gang member, and I needed to stop behaving that way. And this is the principal saying this. This is the principal saying this, right? And that's, again, straight-A student, perfect citizenship grades, right? Like, I am not a troublemaker kind of kid. That has never been my MO. And having that constantly follow you around all the time is going, what is going on? What do your parents say to this kind of stuff? I mean, as they they see this... Uh, and experiences happening to you over the years. Oh, it, they're outraged, right? I mean, it's just a constant level of outrage because they've seen their children go through this. And there is, I think it's one thing to experience this and it's horrible and hurtful and terrible as a parent who can't stop this, right? That feels mm-hmm. so disempowering because my parents went to the district. My parents went to the principals. My parents went to the right people and were completely dismissed every time. And yet they never moved. And, I, right? Because <laughs> so. they, they got other kids going to have the same thing happen to them, right? Because yes, they, they have, right. They have a, you know, a menagerie of, <laughs> of kids with, with different cultures. Yeah, for sure. And I think that part of it, you know, I, we have this discussion all the time because I'm like, my parents have lived, they bought their starter home and they've just remodeled it over the years. So we're in the same house. Like, so they've they never moved. in Davis County. They 
they still live in the same house they bought in the 70s when they got married. Um, and they are now coming on 50 years almost of marriage in the same house. And I always ask, why? Why did we not move to Salt Lake? Why did not we move anywhere with a little bit more diversity? And their response was, you know what? If we're not fighting this fight, who's going to? Because we have to keep pushing, right? We have mm-hmm. to keep trying. And there are days that I am super frustrated with that answer, right? Where it's like, I'm tired and I don't want to do this anymore. But it made me a stronger person, right? I'm able to stand up for myself better than I ever would have been able to had I not had these horrible confrontations. Not to say that I would have loved to not have the confrontations. <laughs> right. That would have been lovely. You're going to love to get that skill some other way. Right. Yeah. But I will say that it has given me a good skill set. And it's, I mean, this is... I you know, got into journalism out of college because I wanted to give voice to the voiceless, right? I knew what it felt like to never be heard and never be believed. And that was something that has directed my entire life. When we come back, we'll continue this discussion. I, you know, and I said to Sheena, you know, as a black person uh, growing up in uh, the Midwest, I've never been called the N-word by anybody other than a black person. And even then, it is N-I-G-G-A, not E-R, which is a distinction, Despite the fact Only if that you're black, it please, is true. children, don't but use no, that no, word. No, no, no. I don't want to hear it at all. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm gone yeah, with that. But I'm just saying. But if you're going to do people, it, please. You, just like you don't call, somebody else doesn't call your brother or your sister something without getting in, you know, you getting in their face about it. That's, that's how that works. That's familiarity. We'll continue our discussion. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, speaking today with Sheena McFarland, who was a student in the Davis County School District in Utah, which was had just recently uh, entered into an agreement because there was institutional racism going on there in a way that was so <laughs> egregious that the Justice Department got involved in it. And Sheena talks about as a as a seven year old, she and an Asian American, a Japanese American uh, student, assaulted to unconsciousness. Uh, mm-hmm. By a group of older kids who I, I can't even I, seriously, I can't imagine that. I, I just can't imagine walking home from school, mind your own business, seven years old, and some carload of big kids get out and just beat you to a pulp because of your skin color. Because of your skin color, as, as they're you know, screaming these epithets at you. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as you go on later, uh, as your teachers are no better, your um, the leaders of these schools, your principals are no better, they're disgraceful too. I, I only wish I could say that to them and to their faces. But unfortunately, that that not possible to us. But Amy had some ideas. She wanted to kind well, of get some perspective from you. I wanted, Sheena, if you don't mind, uh, to go like a little deeper on what this did to you. What did it do to your psyche? What did it do to your confidence? What did it make you feel like as a kid to hear those things? Sure. So there was definitely um, a lot of self-image and confidence issues, right, that plagued me throughout my um public education years, right? It really wasn't until I got to college, finally, that I was able to address some of these issues in a kind of a more adult way and be around folks who looked like me and have these discussions and have some shared narrative, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm not the only one. I don't have to prove to you that this happened to me, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because you went through it as well. Um, And so what that really did to me, I think, was just really hugely undermined my confidence, right? In a lot of ways where, I mean, I've often been that person that does stand up for people who are being bullied or who are not um, being treated well, um, especially because they're different, right? I mm-hmm. could not ever handle that, right? I, I talk about who I hung out with in my uh, high school years, and it was kind of the the misfits, right? Because you had um, the LDS kids who wouldn't hang out with me because I wasn't LDS, and then I had the, um, you know, you had like the drug doers, which was not my jam, right? And so there was like 
I don't know, 15 of us in between there that we could find some friends um, and do. But we were kind of the outcasts. And that worked for us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because we could be ourselves among each other. But it really was hard when I would tell a story like this and be told that didn't happen, right? That that didn't, you're imagining that. Mm -hmm. I had to verify that story with my friend. We caught up years later and I said, hey, that really happened, right? Because I didn't imagine that, right? right? I'd been gaslit so well that I was doubting my own memory at that point. And he was like, no, 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 that happened. And my parents were like, yeah, of course that happened. Do you not remember me driving you around, (laughs) right? Like, yes, that was a real thing. Um, But it really did make me um, unconfident in a lot of ways. But, but when also, everybody around you is saying it's not as bad as you think, think it, it is. is. Right. And like that's, that's what's hard, right? Because they're like, oh, you're playing victim. Oh, you're just like not, you're being too sensitive about this, right? This is mm-hmm. not a big deal. But it was a big deal. I mean, the fact that when I read that article, it like, like opened up a whole Pandora's box of emotions that I had been suppressing for so long, right? Where it's like, Did oh. you ever get therapy? Yeah. You know, I... I got therapy after my one of my brothers passed away, um, and I did therapy after that, but not for this, right? Because it just wasn't something that I really, I think, talked with my parents even a lot about, right? It was not like a, hey, I feel bad because I'm brown, right? There was never that moment that we had in those conversations. We talked about race and color a lot mm-hmm. in my family because we knew it was an issue, yeah. um, but that wasn't something I did. Um, probably should have. So yeah. <laughs> my mom's it's a therapist now. So, you know, right. Yeah. My mom's now a therapist and she would probably tell me, why didn't we do that? We should have yeah. done that had I known. No, so. I, think, I think, but I think that's sort of the minimizing, right? Like right. we buy into this idea that like, well, but you're fine. It's mm-hmm. just words. And I, I just on television this morning, there was a very well-known uh, public official saying racism is always here. It's always been here and it's always going to be here. And I just wonder how you feel hearing that because when I, I hear that, it I feel like someone like is suffocating me. This idea that we have to surrender to racism is overwhelming. I, I don't just, know that it's surrendering to racism. Just have to no, acknowledge but he's it's saying be no. These this is what other pe- this is what I heard this morning was racism is always here. It's always going to be here. So just stop, you know, with your belly aching, basically, oh, right? Okay. There's always going to be racist, and my response to that was that is unacceptable right and i just wondered like as we have especially during the george floyd from there on has this been has this triggered some things for you yeah of course right because i mean i have not lived the black experience right that is not my racial background pretty close though but people think that i'm black right so it's kind of this weird thing right i mean like if you were to ask me what my ethnicity is i was raised white right i mean like i didn't have i don't have a cultural tie to india i don't have a Mm -hmm. cultural tie to anything else but white Mm -hmm. and that's fine but i've been othered my entire life right i've been told i'm on the margin Mm -hmm. um and with all of the racial unrest and it's actually been there's a lot of emotions that come up, right, with what's mm-hmm. been happening since George Floyd. Um, I am very involved um, in the EDI uh, world right now, and I have been, and that's been awesome to be able to make progress and see things happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I 100% disagree that racism has to be part of our culture, right? That's not a thing that should be saying, oh, you're always going to have to deal with that. It's Tell like, people what EDI is. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, And up at the University of Utah where I'm doing this work, uh, we lead with equity. So a lot of people call it DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but we flipped a little bit. Yeah. Um, Equity, uh, different from equality, by the way. 100% Mm -hmm. different, right? So that's giving folks who have been 
uh, marginalized. marginalized the ability to stand at the same starting line, right, as the folks who haven't been, um, rather than saying everyone gets treated equal. You're basically giving people what they need to be able to compete, rather than worrying about, oh, there's a start line. If you can get yourself there, you're good to go. Yeah. Absolutely, right? This America. Pull up your bootstraps. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yep, exactly. So not equal opportunity, but actual equality, right? Yeah. Actual equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's been really empowering, but also incredibly emotionally draining some days, right? Mm-hmm. We were just like, if I have to have one more calm conversation with someone who's coming from a racist perspective, I just don't know if I can do it anymore, right? Um, and it's so, like, I have to sit on my hands sometimes. You can tell I'm a hand talker. People on radio don't know this, but I'm waving wildly. Um, but, like, I have Are to sit on my Italian? hands. And, right. Well, my mom is Italian, so yes. Really? So, um, but the um, just the self-control it takes sometimes to have to say, I'm going to swallow this and have my perspective just muted for a second so I can hear what you're saying. So I'm not just giving you that pat, let's have this fight, right? I actually do want to have these conversations. It's just that it takes a huge amount out of you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that those conversations are so crucial because um, systemic change doesn't happen without personal change, right? Yeah. Because people make up a system. People are the institutions. Absolutely. We learned, so- if we've learned anything in the last four or five years, it is that institutions are run by human beings and it's the human beings that are making these decisions and and have these biases and are buying into these ideas right, right. so that's the biggest issue um i guess and i know probably coming up against another break but no, no, we got a I, and a half. I would say when you're having these conversations and you feel like you have to listen um do you ever say to people like you're the third person I've had this discussion with this week or you're the th- you know what I mean like you know put, it in, to put it in context because you might be the only brown woman that some people know yeah I mean, Jason has had this Jason said I'm tired of being the black friend I'm, right I'm, I'm done with that <laughs> no yeah. I hear it but yeah but do you ever say like look just for context I'm going to listen to you and we're going to have this conversation because I do want to affect change but I need you to understand that I have talked with eight white people in three days about why there's not racism, or, you know, or why yeah. this is why racism isn't endemic in our in our society. Absolutely, I um, try and approach all those conversations with empathy, but I'm also pretty blunt, right? And I do get that context of saying, "Hey, you're not the only one," and there are other other resources for you to find, to talk to, and to understand. And here are some books for you to read first, so that you have at least the vocabulary, so we can have a shared conversation here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also open to folks who are saying, "I'm going to ask some really awful things that are probably going to come off as really racist," but this is how I was raised. And I need to fix this. And in those moments, I am happy to have an honest conversation because that person is truly trying to change, right? Because it's really hard to fight your upbringing sometimes. Um, but I think that there is definitely that need to have that context of you are not alone in this understanding of the world that is probably not as broad as you would want it to be. Let's see if we can broaden that. And here are some other ways that you can do that that do not take up all of my time. All right. When we come back, I, I want to uh, ask you if along the same line as you just went down what do you do to address this stuff so that, I, like uh, Amy said, it, we're always going to have this fight, but there's got to be some way where we can make some inroads so that uh, it's, at some point we, 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 we feel we like there's progress this in being the made. Mayor, please. I, yeah. I know it's true. Uh, we're coming back. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Voices of Reason, Jason Lee, Amy Donaldson speaking today with uh, Sheena McFarland, who was a student uh, in the Davis County School District, which was uh, outed by the Department of Justice as one of the most racist and uh, 
severe racism and harassment has been an issue for them for, as we know, decades of talking to Sheena. But in the last five years, it was just so prevalent that uh, changes have to be made to address these issues because it is impacting the educational process of lots of students who have to endure this kind of uh, behavior and institutional bias. And not, I think the important thing to know is like these kids are like Sheena, like they're growing up and saturated in this racist idea and they're being gaslit to, to, to believe that what they're experiencing is not real and is not that bad and is not what they think it is. And, um, and, and I think the investigation found that uh, black students were more harshly uh, disciplined than their white peers for the same behavior. They were not allowed to form support groups where white students were allowed to form support groups. Um, they're less than 1% of the student body. So you're definitely isolated. And I think if you haven't been the only one of your type in a room, you don't understand how intimidating and um, it, it, the isolation is really the only word. You you just don't have anything, any support. Um, but they found that pervasive racial harassment and other forms of racial discrimination in the public schools was so pervasive that they they asked for some re- they required some remedies and one of those is to form this office where of kind of like of civil rights where um, students and parents could go and report incidents and have it be dealt with. I, I just wondered your thoughts on sort of what do remedies look like to you because you can't have when you're less than one percent of the population you're not going to be having the conversation that needs to happen to change the hearts and minds of all the people who have. Even even the nice ones and unintentionally racist, right? Like we can't help. I can't see my racial bias. It has helped me to do this podcast. It gets revealed over and over years. And I've read so many books I can't even tell you. <laughs> We've talked about it on this podcast. Um, it's a it's a lifelong education because it is imbued into our very you know fiber as of American society. So which I think until we accept that, we really don't have a hope of eliminating it. It's just a matter of, you know, making some spaces more um or less tolerant of the racism, I guess. So what do you see as the options going forward? Is it like an office where you could report racial discrimination? <laughs> I love these questions of if you ruled the world, what would that look like? Um, I know, It'd right? be a smarter world. Yeah, yeah. Free books. everywhere. I do think... You I mean, get a book. You get a book. <laughs> the office is a start, right? That's a good place. Be, and it's really how that office behaves that's going to be so important. If they actually validate and say, they start by believing, right? That's where it begins, is saying, hey, when someone comes to you and says, hey, my little black boy was dragged down the street in a bus because he got caught in the backpack, right? In that oh, horrible yeah. story. Yeah, that was awful. And actually have actionable steps that are taken because of that, right? There's not the defense of the person who did the racist thing. It's a, hey, there's obviously a problem here. Let's fix this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't dropped any names in this. I will say in sixth grade, Sid Dixon, who is now in charge of the state yeah. um, office of education, she was my principal. She was the first safe space I felt in education. And I didn't recognize that until I was an adult, right? I knew that I really liked her as a kid. I really enjoyed her. Um, She was very much a champion of me, and I really appreciated that. That was a very good year for me. Sixth grade was a good year. Um, And largely, I attribute that to her. And I think having people like her who are of the majority, right? You have to have allyship. You have to have people like her who are in powerful places, who have the privilege to say, 
we're going to fix this, right? Mm-hmm. When you go to a district administrator and they dismiss you, that is a massive problem. There has to be that moment of saying, no, we're going to start by believing and then we're going to start remedying the problem. And right? I think also by saying that there's not any insignificant incidents of racism. Right. Right? Like that's, I guess, what I hear a lot is, well, you know, this is kids being kids. Oh, this is uh, rap culture or this is whatever. Whatever it is, whatever caused it, whatever led to it, to me, is maybe important in understanding how to undo it. But it's not an, it, it, we use it as a rationalization tool. And I think the very first thing they're going to train teachers, I guess, how to recognize this. And, and I hope recognize it in themselves, because honestly, if you're white and you don't think you have racist you're not racist. And I'm not saying like I, I want people to understand like it's not either or. It's not a diagnosis that you have or you don't have. We all have we all were raised in this, uh, you know, uh, a racist society. I was educated in this public education system that taught me uh, not to value certain culture as much as my culture. Right. Like you, if you're the conqueror, you're the best. Right. That was what I grew up. The people that you are uh, victimizing become the savages. Well, and not just that, but like they're less valuable. Right. (laughs) Right. So they're they're clearly. And so I think that we all have to kind of examine those things. Right. Mm -hmm. But so I hope that it teaches teachers to recognize this in themselves and how to how to relate to people. But I because I do feel like white people need to be helping white people deal with this because we're in the majority and there aren't enough brown and black people or Asian people to to educate every one of us individually in a way that we find palatable. So, and I right, say in the that, way that we find palatable, like we, I we can't be offended while we're yeah, learning all these. I say lessons. that with a touch of sarcasm, right. but I have had people that I love, respect, and think want to change tell me, "Well, the minute you start to criticize me, then I shut down." And what I say to them is, "How do you think it feels to be told that what you are experiencing is not what you are experiencing?" That you are being judged by your color of your skin, you know, and, and not I'm just, the one doing it. And me and my cohorts over here, we keep doing it. But if if you want us to change, you have to be nice about it. I can't have my feelings hurt. Yeah. You don't get to tell me how I feel and how to remedy it. When I tell you how to do it, just accept it for what it is rather because it's not always about you. That's, and that's the problem. That's what the problem yeah. is to me. You know, it's. White people have just been, it's always been about them. Still is. Let's be honest. Everything is. Though. Everything Movies, is. I mean, like, so I, I, in, in the United look, States. Look, look, here's an example that's not race. It's gender. When they remade Ghostbusters with all women, everyone was like, well, I, this is ruining my uproar. movie right. and I can't relate to this. And I'm like, I watched the original Ghostbusters. It was all men and I related to it. I enjoyed it. Why can't you? I mean, I love um, like when Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh-huh. they said, how many female justices yep. should there be on the Supreme Court? And she said, how about nine? Yeah, I love We've that. been ruled by nine men many times. And and women didn't say, well, this is unacceptable. I mean, this is how am I supposed to function if I am, you know, I think you see it on the redistricting uh, situation right now. Like it's people who've been in charge of everything and had everything catered to them now are saying, but I don't want you, Sheena and your friends to be in charge of me, like you have to trust me, right? right. I, I, I'm good. Yeah, there's a quote that I heard that I need to find the attribution for, but it, it's something to the effect of, for those who have been privileged, equality feels like oppression, right? And it's very much that idea of I have to give up something. Wait, I can't be in this place anymore. What's going on? And I think, you know, I, I teach um, at the university and 
one of the things I do is a bead privilege exercise where I have everyone do this exercise where they take a, a bead for everything they can answer yes to. Um, and there are questions like, I've never had to worry about someone following me in a store because of my color or my skin, those kinds of things, right? But it mm-hmm. looks at race and eth- and ethnicity. It looks at sex. It looks at nationality. There's a bunch of things, right? Yeah. Disability. Um, and it opens people's eyes because they recognize, wow, I had a lot more privilege than I thought. Or, wow, I didn't really have as much privilege as I did think, right? Mm-hmm. And it's... So important because it, it's an empathy moment, right? It's a moment of taking themselves out of themselves to go, oh, I should probably be really grateful that I have the lifestyle that I have, right? And that I've had the privileges that I've had. And it makes me understand that other folks maybe haven't had those privileges. And so how can I use my privilege to open those doors, right? How do I bring that in? Okay, we got to stop now. But I want to say, first of all, straight A's through 12th grade, <laughs> a full ride scholarship uh, to the University of Utah, despite yeah. having everybody who was supposed to be helping her try to keep her down, telling her she's this or that, and and that moronic uh, second grade teacher. What's her name? Mrs. Carlson. Mrs. Carlson, shame on you. <laughs> uh, that uh, And I know that's terrible, but I, I, I find that just abominable. You are an example of resilience and strength and intelligence that I, I am more power to you, sister. Well, thank you and an much. amazing writer, I will say. Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of her writing. <laughs> and... Uh, Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. You can find free episodes of our podcast on uh, Google Podcasts and uh, Apple Podcasts, all the places where you find Spotify uh, interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.